Howard Hendricks uh, impacted many, many, many people across the Christian community throughout the last number of years. He's now with the Lord. But he said this, we should not be ashamed to discuss what God was not ashamed to create. Underline that in your thinking. He goes on, he says, the Song of Solomon can help us cultivate a healthy perspective on marital love, a romance, and passion in today's hyper-sexualized culture. I believe that to be true, and that's why we're looking at it as we are today. At this point in the passage, we're seeing that the fiancé is talking to Solomon as she's looking forward to their marriage, and she is doing the majority of the talking in the message today. Last week, Solomon did the majority of the talking. This week, she is saying a lot. And today we're going to look at what she says, and we're going to see that she shares two insights about romance that show us the healthy progression of romantic love. And I want us to look at this today because I want these messages to serve as a little bit of a guide over the next few uh, years, really, to how this church views this idea of marriage. And so I seek to add into this biblical relevance because we want the Scripture to speak to us. I also seek to bring in some of the current research and studies of the day, which I'll make reference to. And I also bring a little bit of wit into it or an attempt at wit into it. So when you go home from here, you have the ability to talk about either the serious, the Scriptures, or the wit to begin the process of discussion and dialogue, whether it's with family, friends, or others, wherever you find yourself. The first of the two insights on romance we look at here is she has romantic love for Solomon. She has romantic love for Solomon. There's agape love, that's God's love that he extends to us, it is overwhelming. There's phileo love, brotherly love, or sisterly love, if you will. The city of Philadelphia is named after that. That's an important love, right? There's eros, which is more of the uh, romantic side of this, which would have to do with eros and erotic, which we would say would come with the idea of romance. We established last week that God is the one who created the idea of marriage and romance, and God has made our bodies the way He has. He is a great designer of this, and He said, be fruitful and multiply. It's when we take that which God has made that He intended to be pure, for good intentions, to be a blessing and a privilege to participate in, and we begin to mess with it, redefine it, uh, re-diagnose the way to deal with it, that we begin to mess up that which God has given us until in our world today, it seems like anytime you mention anything that would have to do with sexual something, there's probably some kind of a negative connotation to it, not a beautiful awareness that God has created, something sacred, something special, something healthy, something wholesome. And so in our society, it is probably the most powerful thing in the world in which you and I live today because it is that which will take a politician down, it'll take a minister down, it'll take a parishioner down, CEOs, COOs, it's something like that. If they allow themselves to be dominated by the human organs that God has given us as a design for pleasure and for procreation in the proper context. Now I don't expect too many amens from nine o'clock anyway. 
But with this message, I don't expect one there. I know that you are saving your amens for when you go home and bless your dinner. You've only got one to use today, so don't, don't use it here. <laughs> you bunch of people. <laughs> I love you to death. Wouldn't be here if I didn't. She has romantic love, and it's expressed in chapter 1 and verse 1. Notice what she says. <clears throat> she loves kissing him and him kissing her. I want to say to those of you that have been married for a while, passionate kissing, according to research, <clears throat> is one of the first things to go when couples are not getting along. Can I get an amen? No. <laughs> I'm sorry, I set a trap. I am sort of sorry I set a trap. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> thank you just the same. We're, we're friends, you know. A marriage survey in Germany several years back, and I shared this with you a few years ago, but a marriage uh, survey in Germany several years back said this. I, th I think it's worth hearing again. said, if a man kissed his wife in the morning before leaving for work, he would have several effects on his life. If you're ready to receive it, say yes. yes. First, they live five years longer on average, the study showed. Second, they have 50% fewer illnesses. I thought that interesting. They make 20 to 30% more money than the others who do not do this. If I had been participating in that survey, I definitely would want to be a kisser in the morning <laughs> because it seems to win. Now, I want to ask you a question as though you are my class and I'm the teacher, okay? But I'm going to ask you a question. Don't look at the cheat sheet. I'm going to ask you a question. How many germs are exchanged on a kiss? All right, are you ready? A lot? That's a good answer. Huh? A whole lot? Anybody want to guess? 80? How many? Million. 80 million germs are exchanged. Now, if you eat the same diet, research shows that there's a less exchange of germ because you consist of the same composite. So it would be an interesting thing. Now, your nerve has a high, uh, your lips have a high number of sensory nerves to them. You know that. So with your lips having a high measure of nerves, you could kiss someone, say to them, you're getting on my nerves. You could say that. <laughs> Just some things I think of while I'm preparing a message. <laughs> you're getting on my nerves. Do it again. And... Uh, <laughs> she says, I like to kiss. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Look at verse 3. She is dizzy from his romance. His smell really pleases her. Now, a scientific study has been done on this, and several studies will report to us that they had ladies that they gave to them shirts that men had worn and men had either worked in them or done something, so the smell of the man was on the shirt. So they gave these shirts to the ladies and had them smell them and to see which smell, this sounds almost bizarre, but which smell they were more drawn to in a sense of a romantic draw. Not just, you know, that stinks so bad, throw it in the washer, but a romantic draw. This is kind of weird, but it's pretty interesting to me. Because a study revealed that women wanted someone whose smell was different 
than theirs, it would reveal a different genetic pull than their own. And the reason for that is believed to be that what happens with that whole situation is they're thinking, if I'm going to marry this person, I want to widen and counterbalance the gene pool. In case we have children, we want to give them a wider audience of genes. I thought that very interesting. Verse 3, look at your passage. She likes his name. It says, your, your name is like a fragrance. It is a pleasing aroma. Even others speak well of you. Your name is great in the community. He has done that on purpose. He has worked to create a name that would be with integrity. You go talk to his employers, good name. You go talk to the people down at the ball field, good name. You go talk to his friends that he's known for a long time, good name. You have a good name that is a good name that you have carried with you. And this is a wonderful thing. This relationship moves past just the physical realm at this point. I think that's interesting to know. I had a friend one time in college who said to me, he said, I broke up with the girl I was dating. I said, you did? What happened? He said, well, the only thing we had in common were lips. And I thought, good grief. The immaturity first off, but I thought, wow. We want to be able to be attracted to someone more than just in the physical realm because when we allow ourselves to be attracted to someone in more than the physical realm, we find out like Josh McDowell would suggest to us that, that some parts of the physical realm equal about one-twelfth of a relationship in the first place. So it's not just that physical because our bodies will change, our libidos will change, and we must understand that kind of thing. So she understands him on a deeper level than this. She says to him that, that I like your name. You see, the relationship is moving in verse 2 and 3 out of just that surface, I think you're cute range, out of that I like just this, but something greater, something better. Greg and Aaron Smalley were with us for a couple of marriage conferences. They work at Focus on the Family in the, in the Relationships of Marriage. And, and they said, before you plan your wedding, you need to plan your marriage. And that's one thing as pastors we seek to do. A lot of times people come to us and they're so ready to get married. It's kind of like, oh, hurry up and do the ceremony so we can go ahead and do our life. But the reality is what you want to be able to do is to plan something of a marriage and not just a wedding because a wedding lasts for a day and then it's over. And then the marriage, it just starts that day, right? You don't want to leave God at the altar. You want to be able to take God with you into your home. And so as you take God into your home with you, and as you do that, they go on to say this, learn to let your hair down a bit and relax and, and with some of your inhibitions and just be yourself. You got to be able to be yourself. And she has this off-the-wall, excited thought that she wants to share with him. She says in verse 4, why don't we just run away and elope? Why don't we just forget all this stuff about planning some kind of big wedding and do something like that? And she says this. Here's what the message says in its, its writing. Take me away with you and let's run off together. I'd like to be able to do that. Now, I'm going to meddle, and I'm going to go deep on this meddling. If you're ready to receive it, please nod your head. Now, I won't know if you're asleep or if you're awake. Just nod it. All right. I want to say something to you, and that is this. The Internet has redefined the idea and the way that we connect and contact other people. Am I right? Yes. It has redefined our world in so many ways. I like the Internet. I think the Internet can be used for very good purposes, and I use it and research from it every week. But I also know that it can be used in very negative and very even, listen to this, unsafe ways. Unsafe ways. Unsafe ways. 
There are times where you would have someone that thinks they're meeting up with someone that is nice and cool and comfortable and all of that, only to find out that they're meeting up with someone who is a predator, who is someone with ill-intended purposes and motives, and you get so into a situation, you really can hardly even back yourself out of it to the point that murders happen from this, or people really get into slavery or something like that that is abusive and is very, very bad and unkind. If you're a parent and you're monitoring your child's uh, internet action or their computer or their phone work and they don't like it, don't care. Stay in their business. Stay in their grill. They're going to thank you later. They're going to hate you now. You're not called to be their best friend. You're called to be their parent. So it's just a thought and uh, learn from tough lessons. So I would just say, think of that. Solomon's fiance shows him love and respect and honor and wants to marry him. She has romantic love for him. Now I heard about a man who was missing. I just shared a serious side of that, but I heard about a man who was missing and his wife And her neighbor friend had looked all over and could not find. So the wife and the neighbor go to the police station and they began to report that her husband has been missing. And the police, some of you are in law enforcement, said, well, give us a description of your husband. And she said, well, he's 35, six foot two, got dark hair, wavy hair, Athletic build, weighs about 185, soft-spoken, and he's very good with the children. And her neighbor looked over and said, your husband doesn't look like that. He is fat, about five feet tall, has a big mouth, and is very mean to your children. And she said, I know that, but who would want him back? (laughs) Well, this lady really does like Solomon and wants him. Second thing I want to point out. You ready to receive it? Say yes. Yes. She is convinced Solomon is the one for her. Now, how do you know when you've met the one? (laughs) How do you know when you've met the one? Pam told me she asked her mother, how will I know when I have met the one? And her mother said in her West Virginia accent, well, you'll just know. And so you'll just know. Pam said that's the way she knew. She has met the one, chapter 2, verse 3. She's blown away that she gets to marry someone that is so right for her. Not perfect in every way, not 100% everything, checking every box to its nth degree, but someone who is right for her. Someone that not just initial love, but lasting love can look past some of the flaws of the way they live their life. She's blown away. She probably thought every boy she saw could be the one. She may have dated several and thought they were the one. But now she knows the difference. She has met somebody. In verse 3, she says, you're like an apple tree. She begins to compare him to fruit and flowers. It's a beautiful descriptor that she gives. In other words, you've captured my eye. You've captured my thought. I see you as a person that could be my soulmate, she's saying here, for whatever that might mean. She wants to be close to him. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, and chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, as I described last week, 
Solomon is written in concentric circles where he'll start with a thought and then deviate, come back to it, so you have to go to different parts of the Bible to find what he is saying and when he connects back with that thought. So here he is, and here in the writing of this, in verse 13 of chapter 1. She describes him like the aroma of myrrh. Now that means absolutely nothing to you and me, except you can get myrrh in a liquid form, you can get myrrh in a little bit of a solid nard type form, and you can then mix that with a little bit of fat and put that in a little box, which they would wear in a necklace around their neck. Okay, so here's what happened. When their body begins to warm up, it melts the fat, which melts the nard, which creates the aroma. And she is saying to him, the aroma of you is so incredible. It fills my nostril. It fills this room and everybody can know it. But I definitely know it. That is what she is saying in verse 13. In chapter two and verse six, she says, I want to hug you tight. I just want to hold you close to me, man. I just can't get enough of you, she's saying. She is daydreaming about him. She's thinking of his embrace. In chapter 1 and verse 14, she compares him to a henna flower. Henna flower grow somewhere along the um, sides of the Dead Sea. You don't see a lot of them. Uh, about 10 foot tall plant. You could see that if you're near the Dead Sea. Uh, if you're in the area where they would grow, you could see these, these plants. In other words, what she is saying by definition is, you're a beautiful plant in the desert where there's almost nothing else, but there you are, you're growing and you're awesome and you're wonderful. So this is what she's saying. Her analogy is clear. In the desert, you are my oasis. You are the one. She could have written a Hallmark card right there. And then look, chapter two, verse one. She has a wow factor about herself. She is like an untamed flower. I'll be like the Rose of Sharon. What is a Rose of Sharon? A Rose of Sharon needs no gardener. It takes care of itself. Solomon says you need no gardener when he's writing this. They grow along the, the low coastal area of, around Mount Carmel. That's where they grow. And near the Egyptian border, if you want to, for those of you that understand geography, you know that's where it is. And so, it is uh, the Rose of Sharon. And so the comparison now is to this flower that needs no gardener. In other words, you are perfect. Uh, you really wouldn't even have to wear makeup. You just have it going. You wouldn't have to put on the earring or the necklace or you wouldn't have to wear the fine dress. You can just come in and this whole thing and you look fine. That's what he's saying. And then he, the comparison is a lily of the valley. Chapter two and two. And here's, here's the deal. Lily of the valley, they grow on the floor of the lower area. You're a beautiful flower that even if there is a thorn around, you still make the unbearable, listen, bearable, because you are with me. You see that? In other words, you've heard couples say, I can go through anything because I can go through this with you. I wouldn't want to go through this with anyone else. I don't want to do this without you. I want to go through this with you. Pam had cancer treatments. We went through it together. Uh, it's something we say, well, we'll just do this together. That's what I understand this to be saying. And then she hears a sound. Can, can you tell the sound when you're, 
when, when your family members are coming in, can you tell, you know what the sound is when they're coming in, right, to your house? You can almost tell who's coming in, right? Right? You can, you can tell who's coming in. If your kid's coming in, grandkid, whoever, husband coming in, wife, whatever's going on, right? You can hear and you can tell that they're the one that's coming in the house. Whoever they are, that you can tell that they're coming in. <clears throat> and so they've been apart for a little while, Solomon and his fiance, his fiance and Solomon. And so she is saying, I can hear you. I can hear you from a distance. I can hear you coming. She has been dreaming of him. She has been, she has been dreaming that she was searching the streets for him. And now she finds him. In other words, she's saying this. I think about you. I even dream about you. This thing is getting real hot. I absolutely love you. You are the one. I am sold out. And she is not afraid to tell him, I absolutely am on your team. Philip and Juanita Yancey, Philip Yancey's known for a lot of his writing on different things in Christendom, but they had reached a mile marker in marriage, and he puts it this way, before marriage, the instinct is that we will really seek, really seek to honor each other and get together with each other and, and just do everything we can, like we'll go to the ball games, we'll do all this kind of stuff, we'll look our best, clean up nice. After we're married, we tend to grow apart if we're not careful because we then say, well, some of those things I did while we were dating, I don't really care about as much. And then years after we have married, we start realizing, wait a minute, I've been selfish. I need to pull it back in. I need to bring it back in a little bit here. And we begin a subtle reversal, he suggests, that brings us back toward a willingness to, to meet the needs of the other person. And as we meet the needs of the other person, he said this, I grieve for those couples who have given up before they have reached this stage. Many of you are in this stage. So I wanna ask you a couple of questions as I often do by way of the insert in your message. And they're very simple questions. What has God said to you today? Because I believe God has said something to you through the singing, through the scripture, through the prayer. As you came onto the campus, he said something to you on your way to church he said something while I've been preaching. I don't know what he said. He, he's always active, and he's saying something to you. And then I want to ask you a question. What will you do about whatever it is that God has said to you? What will you do about what God has said to you? You have to make the decisions. Sometimes they're not easy. Those decisions are tough, but you can make them if you choose to make them. You listen very kindly, and I thank you for doing that. I want to leave you with this thought. After 50 years of marriage... 50 years of marriage. A man was kind of taking inventory of his life, looking back over his life. 50 years is a long time, right? If you think it is, say yes. 50 years. He said to his wife, as they had celebrated their 50th year, he said, 50 years ago, I started out with a cheap house, a junk car, slept on a sofa, a sofa bed, watched a 10-inch black-and-white TV, but I got to sleep with a hot 23-year-old every night. Now I have a half-million-dollar home, a $45,000 car, a nice big bed, a large-screen television, and I'm sleeping with a 69-year-old woman. It seems to me, he said to her, that you're not holding up your side of things. <laughs> to which she replied, in a very reasonable, logical way. You go on out and find you a hot 23-year-old girl to sleep with, and I will once again make sure that you are living in a cheap house, driving a junk car, 
sleeping on a sofa bed and watching a 10-inch black and white TV. Can I get a witness in-house? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for you. Thank you for your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Thank you for not avoiding subjects like this because in our world today, Lord, where people marry inanimate objects or pets, in a world where we can't even in our public discourse feel free to define the genders, please help us. In a world where our children in preschool or our children in grade school in some parts of the nation are being taught things that really should be done at home, help us. Have mercy on us. We are your children, but we're living in an unhinged reality. How long will you tarry until you return? We want to see you soon. Not just through death, but through rapture. Lord, renew us or rapture us, we pray. In the name of our Lord. Amen.